Amen. Okay. I think we also want to probably do a couple of announcements before we get started. Um, Let us know when we're started. Let us know when we're live. Okay. Well, we should be started right now. Okay. Um, wonder if anybody can see us though. We'll catch them up in about 10 minutes if we need to, but what were the announcements that you had you wanted to share with the crowd? Well, I definitely wanted to um, remind everyone that we have the conference coming up in August with more details on that to come. And also, to let everyone know that if they're watching this, they can support us more by tagging their friends or sharing the content onto their Facebook pages so that people can see what's happening. Um, you say there's a conference coming up? Yep, there's a conference coming up. Is it, is it like, is it gonna be on Mars? We just landed a, a vehicle on Mars. Is it gonna be on Mars? <laughs> We did. Yeah, you didn't know that. I think it was on a was it Friday or Saturday. There was a landing on Mars. I mean, not not the people in this, <laughs> but you know, sometimes we feel like we're there, but but yeah. we haven't been. <laughs> yeah. So where is this conference going to be at, Ruth? Is it going to be on Mars or in what state? No, I mean, some people to some people it might be like it's on Mars, but no, it's going to be in Phoenix. Okay, okay. Right. Just as hot, I think, right? Is that the, the red planet? Just as hot. I think there's red yeah, rock. It's, it's in red because because of the sun, because of the, yeah, the, the red rocks, too. Yeah, red rock. I, I've, I've been there. <laughs> well, thank you for that announcement. So that if those are people interested, check out Voice of the Middle Ground on Facebook and website, and you can find more information about that as it becomes available. But that's not today, is it, Ruth? What's what's today? Today we are going to be talking about um, PTSD and addiction and police officers and first responders. Um, so as as I was preparing for this uh, for our talk today, I was looking into statistics um, just about PTSD in general and. Um, according to the Depart U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, seven out of uh, seven to eight out of every 100 people have experienced PTSD at some point in their lives. And then there are some statistics that uh, that report that there's about 15 to 18 percent of police officers and first responders who also struggle with that. Um, so that means that there are police officers and first responders that struggle with things like hypervigilance, trouble sleeping or concentrating, irritability, angry outbursts, or aggressive behavior, self-destructive behavior, and even thoughts of suicide. No, period, period, uh, stop. Hold on, hold on. That was a lot, that was a lot. So let me, st let me step back and, and, and 
ask Jason, who's from Resilient Recovery, um, how would you define PTSD for those who aren't familiar with, with what those letters mean? So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a syndrome that, that takes that, uh, you know, someone can develop, say, about six months after some kind of traumatic event. So in the traumatic event could be something that happened to you. It could be something that you witnessed, and it could even be something that you were told about. Uh, any of these events that are life-threatening or threaten, you know, life and limb could potentially uh, cause someone to, to develop PTSD. But we usually wait about six months because a lot of people just kind of have an acute post-stress reaction that will resolve on its own. And so we don't diagnose someone with PTSD until six months have gone by. Okay. Thanks for that. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Ruth, you had more you wanted to say? Sorry to cut you off, but you just like eight things that come as a result of PTSD. And I was confused. Uh, what else did you have for us, Ruth? Um, one of the things that makes this even more complicated when it comes to conversations about police officers and first responders is that uh, one of the things that can happen if uh, if a first responder or police officer is found to have that is that they can actually be uh, fired for uh, fired for that being an issue. Okay. All right. So, so we're kind of setting the stage. We're going to talk primarily about police officers, first responders and PTSD, correct? That's going to be our goal today. Yes. Before we get there, let's introduce who we we're talking with because they met you and me before on previous juice bars. But we got two uh, gentlemen here with us who are experts, as I am not. My, the PTSD that I deal with is, is, is hell, and I try to give them salvation in Christ. That's as, that's as much as I know about, about a trauma that affects you later on. But let's start with uh, Phil Hensley. Can you tell us about, about yourself and how you interact in this, in this kind of conversation? I'm a pastor of over 30 years that uh, began to do police and fire chaplaincy in Rockford, Illinois. I did that for uh, seven years there. Uh, I began to run a PTSD support group while I was there because I saw such a high incident of PTSD there. Um, later, after that seven-year mm -hmm. period, I accepted a call to be the uh, executive director of institutional ministries. Uh, we're now uh, located in Oconomowoc with our main office, but we work all around the area. And uh, I, again, run a, a support group for officers, for first responders, uh, for uh, people who are frontline workers who uh, may have uh, PTSD or uh, other moral injury type things. And um, moral injury wasn't listed in your topics. So maybe I'm derailing you by bringing that up. Um, and maybe that should be a different week. I don't know. But, but I'm going to tell you that I, I would actually start with moral injury as a starting point before I'd ever go to PTSD when I'm thinking of especially officers. And when we get it deeper into examples, I'll, I'll help you with that a little bit. But just that much of a introduction, I guess, of thought that there's also something else called moral injury uh, that most people don't have any handle on. Okay, well, thank you, because that's a new, new uh, term for me and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that as we go forward. Thank you, Phil. Uh, and, and, and Jason, uh, Resilient Recovery, share about your background and, and your expertise. Sure. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have um, provided therapy in a lot of different contexts. Um, most recently, I was 
a director overseeing mental health clinics here in, in Arizona. And so I oversaw about six mental health clinics. And um, so certainly have had clients that have had PTSD and, um, and more complex trauma is actually more common. I was working with children. And so sometimes there wasn't a single event that had happened as much as there were a series of events and um, it, not just trauma, but neglect that would lead to a more complex trauma. Okay. Well, thanks for introducing him. And I'm uh, Pastor Aaron Robinson, currently serving at a congregation here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin called Fairview Lutheran Church. And um, and I I have a staff minister who's a former Wild Tulsa police captain. I was talking to, to Phil about uh, this very topic a while back because I have about four other people that have served as officers in the Milwaukee area and wanted to support them, especially as Milwaukee saw some heightened activity about uh, four years ago uh, with the Sherman um, unrest and then most and then more recently in Kenosha, which is not too far from us. So if it's not part of my ministry, it probably should have been. And, and as Phil and I have talked, I, I think I see why. Uh, so that's how I got involved with this along with helping out with Voice of the Middle Ground and, and being there. And Ruth, where are you, where are you from? I'm from Phoenix. Well, I mean, I, I'm technically from Texas, but I'm in Phoenix right now. Um, as, as far as um, yeah, I'm Ruth, I'm from Phoenix and let's get this conversation started. So I, I, I'm gonna go go to the side a little bit. I'm sorry, Ruth and, and the field Jason, but so something like what happens, what's happening in Texas right now, this traumatic event, Jason, you were saying something like this, you would not diagnose someone until like six months later because they have a natural response to trauma, you're saying? Could you go off of that a little bit? A little bit? Sure. So, uh, you know, it, even PTSD, I think in a lot of ways is a natural response to trauma. Okay. It's, the, it's the body and the mind trying to protect you from something like that happening again. But uh, for many people, it will resolve on its own within six months. And so we diagnose someone with PTSD if it's gone past six months and they're still continuing to have those issues, that may mean now, well, I need some professional help to, um, to resolve some of the, the symptoms that I have. Okay, and so you, you had mentioned you had dealt a lot with children in, in many cases. And so you asked, so parents should really, as far as being aware and observing of what's going on in their child's life, not just think because for a day or two, they look fine, but, but keep, eyes open for, for things for a, a longer period? Yeah, for sure. And I think some of the things that, that, you know, they would see would be nightmares, which may be typical, but we're going to hope that that kind of resolves after mm -hmm. about six months. If that, if nightmares continue to happen, that's an issue. If, if a kid, um, their play seems to be kind of dominated by the themes of the stressful event that they went through, that may suggest that this is, that there's some hypervigilance going on. Um, you may see an exaggerated startle response because a child is just sort of on high alert trying to make sure that the um, stressful event doesn't happen again. Okay, thank you. And Phil, you mentioned working with uh, the police officers specifically. Uh, could you kind of take us through how you, how you started the program, started the, the group? I mean, was it, how did that start? It started just because I... I saw uh, some some real negative uh, 
situations going on in which there wasn't healing, in my opinion, there wasn't healing being offered in, a, in an appropriate way uh, within the department. There were some official things there. There were official means to heal. Uh, there were official people they could go to. But if you went to those people, now your name was on the list of the people who needed help, who now aren't trustworthy anymore from the point of view of, of whether or not they may be able to remain as an officer and so on. All kinds of stigma was related. Uh, and not that necessarily it was all designed to be a stigma, but it ended up being a stigma. And so I wanted to offer a safe, quiet place away from eyes where someone who wanted to talk had a place to talk. And that everyone who uh, came to this group uh, was of the same situation, understood it. And so I, I, this began because I had an officer in my congregation who was deeply broken by PTSD. That's, that's where it started. And from that, uh, I, I then, as I worked with officers that I recognized it in, I would tell them, uh, I'm offering this, and only you who know about it, who already have it, who recognize it and others, only you get to invite the new people. <laughs> Nobody else gets, I, I don't invite them, you invite them. So that they always felt safe. They, they knew that they were being invited by someone who understood it. And they knew that the only people who might come and find out where they were or whatever were other ones who knew about it, just like them. So uh, no one else knew when we met or how we met or where we met. To tell us a little bit more about the struggle with PTSD, what does that look like um, in police officers and first responders? I, if, if you'll permit me, I'd like to back up to that concept of, of a moral injury a little bit to help you with it. So okay. I, I think there's, there's a distinction I'd like to make here. And, and uh, I don't know if Jason would say that he's used this a lot in his work too or not, but, but I would say PTSD typically is from something really bad happened and you're reacting to it. And so when he talked about the six months, I, th I think a real simple picture of it would be spiking a basketball, a boom, and it goes way up and then it bounces and bounces and bounces and bum, 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 until finally it stops. Mm -hmm. We hope that in six months, the bouncing has stopped. That's what he's talking about. The, the, the reaction time is, has, has lessened and lessened and lessened until finally it's pretty much in, in in, in normality again, uh, that's what we're hoping for. Usually a PTSD thing uh, response comes from something big. Uh, the IED that went off, the car accident you had, the fire in your apartment, the whatever it was, boom, something happened really bad right now and, and you're, you're having a, a deep reaction to it. But the moral injury is I witnessed something that no human being should witness, or I smelled any, take any one of the five senses. Uh, my, my body was assaulted by something that no human being should be assaulted by. I should never see a human being treat another human being that way, especially as the biggest one, but it could be other things too. I caused a spiritual distress within me, a, a distress not just to my body, but to my heart and my soul uh, that was abnormal, traumatic, even I might call it evil. And that caused a serious inner conflict with inside me because what I saw and what I experienced, no human being should see someone else treat somebody like that. And it, 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 it sends you reeling in a, in a 
emotional way and maybe even in a spiritual way if you're not solidly grounded. Mm -hmm. um, now that's one thing to have that happen once, but if it happens over and over and over and over and over again, and you don't have time to recover, that's when I think it may become PTSD, especially. And I think when, when it may be directly related to it. And I'm especially struck by the fact that uh, when a team of men go out or men and women go out from the fire department, they go out as a team, they, they get the call, they jump into the clothes if they're not in them already, they get in the vehicles and away they go and they handle it as a team, they come back as a team, they get to debrief as a team. When an officer is called, he or she gets into his or her own car, roars to the scene, handles the situation, uh, has a little bit of work at the scene time, and then is sent right off to something else. And doesn't necessarily have that same unload time in between. And I can take you deeper into that as we as we advance. But that I think is is the big difference between what I'm going to call moral injury and what I will call the typical PTSD uh, causing situation. And PTSD can come out of both of them, but but usually when I think of something that causes PTSD, I usually think of a severe sudden trauma. And usually when I think of these other kind, I think of ongoing um, things that are morally wrong to you over and over again. So, so I would put I would put uh, a, a little child who's being uh, sexually molested daily in the moral injury camp even more than the, 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 the physical destruction camp. They didn't have their, their body explode, but um, this happened to them over and over again. It was wrong every single time and it, it just warped them in, in their understanding of what should be trustworthy of what is truth and what is righteousness and what is decency and what is honoring. You know, just pick all those words you want and every one of them has been violated. Everything about them has been violated. Okay, let, let me pause you for a minute. Because I got a follow-up question or two. Thank you for sharing those 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 two different ideas with us, right? So my first question is, when did we start diagnosing things as PTSD? I think Jason gave you a good answer there. I'll let him answer it again. <laughs> well, in, in terms of um, when did the diagnosis first uh, happen? Yeah, like like so because because people in days before. Our, our time, they, they didn't have the, the TV or social media, but they went out to wars and they fought and they had those traumatic things happen to them. They didn't have uh, IEDs, but they had cannonballs or they had um, guillotines that were used in their presence. So they, they've had situations in the past. When did we start saying those traumatic moments are the, are the beginning of this, mm -hmm. this disorder? Yeah, it, you know, it certainly followed the rise of psychiatry itself. Right. So a lot of those things that you talked about, there weren't psychiatrists. Uh, and I think World War One was was clearly an event that shocked the world. And, and I think they I think the term that they used was shell shocked or, uh, you know, and so they, they had a term for what was happening to these people coming back from the war and some of the psychological symptoms they have. But, um, you know, there weren't necessarily uh, cadres and cadres of of psychiatrists who could classify and, and give it a name. So my sense is that, in, maybe not quote me on this, but I think in the 50s and 60s is probably when it's um, became more prominent. And then 
the DSM itself, which is the, the book that we use to diagnose people with, was updated about three or four years ago, which probably has the most accurate understanding of what PTSD is. Okay. And then, so and then I'm, going to, I'm going to ask this question because some people might not know, but um, when you refer to the DSM, what are you referring to? It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, manual that all psychiatrists use. Um, if you want to get reimbursed by an insurance company, you have to have an actual disorder that um, you're treating. And so this is the manual that all therapists, social workers, and psychiatrists use to classify mental health disorders. Thanks for that question, Ruth, and that clarification. Jason, uh, so Phil, back to the moral injury, it sounds like you're saying in that bouncing ball analogy that it gets bounced one, that's a traumatic experience, but moral injury, you're saying, what I'm, what I'm understanding is, someone comes and bounces their ball again and again and again and doesn't let it ever settle. And it's causing damage to down the line. Is that accurate, Phil, or am I misunderstanding that concept? When I, when I used the bouncy ball example, I was trying to talk about a, a PTSD situation. So I, I, I'm, I'm talking there about uh, I just got rear-ended in my car. And first, I don't want to get back into a car, maybe. And then every time I'm driving, I'm checking my rear view mirror. And finally, I get to where I can quit looking at my rear view mirror uh, the way I used to not have to watch it all the time. I can finally get back to a normality. That's what I'm talking about with the bouncing ball. Those are the what I call the traumatic instant actions. Some, something happened in a moment, whether it was the, the blast of a bomb or whether it was um, a, a fire that you woke up to or whatever, whatever uh, happened that triggered in a, in a sudden way, uh, a, a situation that might turn into PTSD. That's what I meant when I talked about the bounce. So that, that's in one camp. In the other camp, I'm talking about things that, that happen over and over again that might or might not be that traumatic, uh, that identified that big at least at the first time. It might be or it might not be, but it, it continues to, to have these things happening. And, and it is especially affecting, instead of the physical, it's especially affecting the moral and the mental, the, 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 the mind and the soul. The, the car accident one or those kind affect especially, the phys first of all, physical. Um, these other ones may or may not have the physical tied to it, but certainly affect the emotional and the, the, the spiritual state of you. Okay, thanks for that, that clarification. So back to police officers, where we want to kind of focus in today. Um, how do you see PTSD affecting their their home lives, as uh, you know, with the police officers? It destroys marriages. It uh, destroys lives. It uh, causes them to. Uh, it, finally, it, it's the question of how do I cope. And one of the things I'm sure that, that Jason spends a lot of time on in his practice is helping people learn how to properly cope, how to properly uh, handle a, a, a situation. And um, when they don't properly cope, when they don't properly handle it, when they don't have a time to debrief, and this builds up and builds up inside of them, uh, then it's either going to go off in a flash anger, or it's going to explode in some way, or you're going to turn to a chemical to 
make your life happier because your life is sad or you're, you're, you're doing some type of fixing that doesn't fix, that, that actually causes more destruction in your life. And so we see, I think the most common one is alcoholism, addiction. I think that's probably number one. Number two probably is a deep anger, or maybe that's even first, but a deep anger that, that maybe res, doesn't resolve itself because I'm not getting past whatever is a primary emotion. When I say the primary emotion, I mean the first emotion that you feel almost always follows up with a secondary emotion. I'll try to explain that. Um, your little child is running out into the street right at an oncoming car. What are you feeling? total desperate panic, right? And you dive and you get the foot of your child and yeah, they fall into the ground, but you catch them and they don't get driven over by the car. Now, what do you feel? You kid, what are you doing? Right? Now you're angry. Now you're, what happened? That emotion, that, that adrenaline is so high, it moved into the secondary emotion. Officers all the time are struggling with being told to shut down all the emotions, put it in a box and put it away. You can't just put your emotions in a box and lock it away. It's gonna to have to come out. And uh, you either need to cry it out, you need to talk it out, or you're gonna put it out in a bad way. Uh, you need someplace safe to be able to unload those things. Uh, just Saturday, I met with my PTSD group and and talked and one of the people said, I so appreciate this group because it's a safe place where I can, yeah, I'm crying today, but it's okay because I know you guys get it. And uh, I need to let this out so that I'm okay afterward. All right, thanks. And Jason, you wanna to add to that, that concept of how PTSD affects those first responders? Sure, I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, the sense of guilt that can happen can contribute to PTSD. And I'll just sort of give you an analogy. Um, I had two brothers that I worked with. One brother was bitten by a, by a pit bull uh, and the older brother observed it. And the older brother had taken the younger brother to the home where the child was bit by the pit bull. And the child who was bit actually his, um, was doing quite well. Um, and, and I think there's a couple reasons. One is that they experienced the traumatic event and it went away. They also, um, there was some medical treatment that had to happen. And so he was continually reminded of the event in a situation where the mother was caring for him. And so th that's one of the main things that can happen with PTSD is we have this, you know, we're experience some sensation we don't want to experience. And rather than move toward it, we move away from it. And it's called escape conditioning. I get rewarded with a relief by not thinking about it, but the, it just kind of grows and gets worse. And so for the kid who observed it, he didn't get any of that having to confront it in a safe place. He didn't get any of that. And then on, you know, on top of that, he's got the guilt of saying, I did this to my brother. It's my fault that that happened. And so it was interesting that when we sat down and one of the things that we want to do is drop a narrative of what happened and have a child be able to talk through this narrative without experiencing all of the panic symptoms. He had went to the friend's house and then the next thing in his narrative was I woke up at home. 
because everything that happened in between was so untouchable to him uh, in the sense of like, it's so scary. I, I can't even think about it that he, he preferred to kind of black it out of his mind and use this escape conditioning as his coping mechanism. So I think that's important to remember is that even if you maybe weren't the person who was most highly injured, you could still be having severe panic or panic and, and other symptoms related to PTSD because of your feelings of guilt about this other person and because you're not ad addressing them in a safe way, kind of like what Phil's able to do in his group is to have people confront the material of what happened in a safe place. Uh, that can be very healing. So, wow, that, that brought me to a thought about a an officer comes home from work and the spouse says, how was your day? And they say, fine. They're not using that time to share in a safe space about what they went through and it just builds over time unless they have another outlet like phil's talking about and so maybe one of the you know a good thing would be to to, to share with your spouse as much as you can without making their moment traumatic <laughs> by by sharing that but but not not leaving that blank space it sounds anyway um that's a really hard moment for the officer because they don't want to make their family full of fear they don't want to tell them the real truth of everything that happened necessarily. It might be so bad that they don't want their family to know. Uh, it, it might be that if they tell their family, their family is going to be so panicky from now on that uh, they won't be able to deal well. Uh, so they're, they're juggling a bunch of questions there with that. And uh, what's, what's the best way for me to handle this? And it may not be telling my spouse, even though you want to be closest to your spouse. Uh, at least not telling my spouse the, the entire thing. And that, that's a really tough one because that is also then how many of the broken marriages happen because my spouse isn't talking to me and then my spouse is talking to somebody else who becomes closer to them because this person understands, this person on the force, and especially this person on the force is someone that uh, is if it's opposite sex or if there's a same sex group or whatever, depending on what the situation is, uh, that might be uh, developing wrong attractions and uh, causing other damage. It's so a tough, tough area. Yeah, so, so in, in that moment of trying to help officers who have gone through a traumatic experience, um, when do you bring the spouse in so that, that they can be part of the support team for that that individual that went through a traumatic experience in my group i don't not in my group i would say that that would happen either in private practice like jason is doing i would think he probably does do that or it would happen uh, if i were uh, asked to go to the house and talk I, I try to always be really clear i'm not a professional counselor that's not part of my role i'm i'm, I'm I'm a pastor who cares. I'm a person who's worked with PTSD who cares deeply about your heart. But I'm not a professional counselor and I don't, I don't want to ever pretend that I'm in that role because I'd be misusing myself and, and uh, endangering them and me probably. Okay. So what's your thought, Jason, on, you know, bringing family into support as a support for those who have gone through a trauma? Yeah, in the case of children, that's very, very common. Um, and that's part of the treatment then is to, and, 
and there's prep work done with the parent to make sure that the parent has responses that are appropriate. Uh, maybe giving them a little bit of a heads up about what kind of things they might want to hear and even doing a little bit of treatment with them so that they can manage their emotions about feeling that and then having the child present their narrative to the parent. And then that can be a very healing thing because you, you've got now a strong, strong presence in your life that knows what happened and reassured. Uh, in the case of um, couples, I think Phil did a great job of poignant example of how, how difficult it is and how difficult it is to balance this. You could legitimately give your family members PTSD by describing the events that happened to you. However, you know, not telling them anything leads to this other thing, right? And so that's where you have to kind of pull back and have a meta conversation. Let's have a conversation about conversations. Um, you know, how much of this as a wife do you want to know? How much of this do you think you really want to understand? And for the husband, how much do you think you really want to share with her? And so you, so you do some of that prep work before um, you would have them talk together about it and just kind of find out what the parameters are but it's, it's very dicey. And I think it's very unique to each couple in each situation. And yeah, my heart goes out to people because there's no simple answer, right? There's no one in the one right way to do it either. Yeah. Ruthie, any, anything, I don't want to just keep on bombarding them. You got any thoughts you want to share? Any questions? Uh, well, first I want to go ahead and take us back to the, uh, to our viewers right now and to say hi, because I don't think we officially did that. Um, right now we have Carly, Faith, Martha, Baldwin, Mickey, Fred Barber, and um, Melissa Brander is here with us. So, hi. Hello, everybody. Um, hey, folks. Hello. Awesome. I want to say, um, as you're um, hearing us talk about this, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to, to give to us, please let us know so that way we can um, incorporate those also in the conversation and help to give you um, some insights that way. Um, I think as we are talking about um, the incorporating of uh, the family into conversations about um, about PTSD and about the experiences of officers and first responders, it really brings in um, brings in again that importance of support systems um, and um, Phil earlier you were talking about the support system that's kind of naturally in play for um, uh, for uh, some first responders like firefighters I think you're referring to um, but it's it's interesting to note that police officers don't don't necessarily have that and so one of the things I'm kind of wondering about and this is kind of uh, taking us ahead a little bit and we'll um, go forward also. Um, well, actually, before we even get to that, do you have any um, any stories, Phil, that you can share with us um, to kind of I'll, wrap on the- I'll share, I'll share one just to help give you the feel of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin personally here. I've had uh, a trauma that was the highest trauma that I've ever had in my life. I walked into a welfare check and found a gun to the head, finger on the trigger, uh, totally unexpected. 
and God gave me the ability to say the right words that, that ended that situation. And they weren't any of the words I expected would work. All the words I tried to say that I thought would work failed. And finally, what I said last, I'm not gonna give all the details here, but finally what I said last, which, which I didn't, would never have started with, and thought it was the last thing I would, would uh, have told someone else to use worked. God used it and um, the uh, situation ended with um, might be able to remove the uh, firearm to be able to get 911, to be able to keep the situation calm, mm -hmm. to be able to deliver the person to safety. And uh, that night, three in the morning, I just jumped awake crying. I woke up crying for joy that this individual whom I know well and I are both alive and both safe and everything's good. And I recognized with that just how deep the trauma was in me. Um, and I debriefed to probably a dozen different people over the next few days. And I debriefed again to my officers on Saturday when I, when I was with them the, the following time that, that we met together. Um, so for me, that was like, whoa, that was a big, big trauma. And it ended really well. And I don't think I'm going to struggle with PTSD over it because nothing bad happened in it. And, and the Lord was very good to me and, and giving me a good, wonderful result in it. And I rejoice in how it turned out. But so I, that happened to me. And, and over the whole next week, man, was that on my mind a lot. Okay. So I'm talking to an officer um, this officer has been working with a child who's been, been terribly, um, badly treated. And I'll just leave it there, but many types of trauma, including sexual, a little child has a court process with this, has to spill all this stuff or show all these things, look at all these things. Not even the mother, not even the grandmother, no one was there for the child except for the officer. No family member. Everyone was defending their butt at the expense of the child. You think about what the officer goes through feeling that. The officer walked away from that and had a suicide that... Uh, also ended up being successful. And it was a different, it was a little bit different one, but that was like all in one week. Actually it was all in two days of, of one week. Um, and, and this is the life of, of an officer. And this is an officer that isn't in uh, a major, major, major area even, although working bigger crimes for some other areas, but, but that's a couple of days in the life of an officer. And, and as I look at that and say, if this officer doesn't get a chance to debrief, uh, what would this life look like in a little bit of time? How important it is then that we have coping strategies, that we have ways to, to, to deal with the stress, that we have ways to talk it through um, 
chances for them to, to unload the pressure. And I don't know if this is maybe a, a good or a bad, you know, I, I, I come from the lay point of view here. So, so I look for these lay pitchers to help people get it. So I tell my officers, you, you're like a blown up balloon. You, you got the balloon below up, it got knotted. And my job is to take a syringe with a little tiny hole in it and run it through the knot and let the pressure out. If I poke the side of the balloon, it's got to pop. I want to, I want to poke through the, the knot and I want to let a little bit sizzle out at a time and use God's word and use comfort and use um, brotherly love and, and uh, the, the, the group of, of uh, men and women who care about you to help that unpressurize. That's my goal. That's what I'm here for. That's, that's what I'm about, to, to depressurize the situation for you. And that's what I see in debriefing. That's what I see in in uh, a suicide uh, suicide a uh, uh, officer support group a PTSD support group we don't want it to end with suicide just like we don't want them to have to be dealing with suicide we don't want them to end with that and uh, mm -hmm. too often uh, more officers eat their gun than get hurt on the job and and die from uh, being shot on the job uh, we don't like that number we don't want that number to continue mm -hmm. Did I get yeah. to where you wanted to go? Thank you. So, so Phil, let me follow up with that. Let's say, as I am a pastor of the church right now, and I wanted to start a group like that. You mentioned that they come because they know that they've experienced a trauma, but are they all diagnosed or is it all just having been through a trauma? I'm inviting any officer to join the group. Who, who cares about the situation. Okay. Um, anybody who, who has PTSD, who has struggled with moral injury, who would like a place to have a safe place to debrief, who believes that God's word has a part in, in that and would, would like to uh, connect with me, uh, I would be telling that officer, give me a call, give me a, a text, let me know, give me an email, whatever, and, and let's start talking. Okay. So uh, I, do not, I do not hand out my Zoom link online. I do not allow people to, to just pop in uh, without knowing ahead of time. I, I wanna make sure that, that I'm bringing someone safe into the group. Okay, so I just want to follow up with that with two questions, I think. One is, then they have not been diagnosed with the DSM, have they? So, so they, they haven't gone through Jason to get diagnosed. They, they, you just, they just, they just care and, and you vet them yourself, right? Many of them have, many of them have a diagnosis. Okay. Okay. That, that was my question. Okay. Sorry, Ruth, go ahead. They may or may not. I want to, I want us to go ahead and take a step back and look at the, um, look at the questions that we have coming in right now. Um, we have a couple here in the chat. The first one is from Mickey. Um, it says, where would you recommend a pastor turn for help if they feel unsure on how to work with officers or first responders who are struggling with PTSD or addiction? To me or to Jason? I think that goes to uh, you, Phil. I think we I can would, put that I would, I would answer. I would answer that I'm, I'm certainly a, a good first stop maybe. But uh, if they're looking for, for deeper help, I would always recommend that they talk with a, 
Christian counselor that they truly, truly trust. And Jason would be one down in his area. I know some other was in uh, the um, uh, Alaska area, but our, our big group that uh, especially works with this type of thing is uh, Lutheran uh, Family Solution, uh, Christian Family Solutions, uh, and certainly has uh, a group of people there who know how to deal with it and who would be able to recommend others in the area. So it, it, it may be way up beyond a, a local pastor's ability is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Um, Jason, would you like to uh, have a shot answering that question? Yeah, I think um, Phil's right on. I think uh, it may not, um, may or may not be this pastor's calling. And it may or may not be something that it's important that he get uh, familiar with or, or have competence around. But I think being able to use listening skills mm -hmm. and then um, knowing some resources that you could share with someone is really important. So part of what's happened in PTSD is that you've lost your own sense of efficacy and autonomy because things have happened to you that you didn't want to happen to you. And so I think a pastor can be very helpful by just listening and trying to trying to kind of locate where is this person on the map? What are they feeling? What are they going through? And then providing options and letting the person choose what they want to do. I think that that ability to, to be able to say, yeah, I think this is the direction I want to go with this um, is, 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 a, is part of the healing process, being able to take back some power and some autonomy. And I would add that for that local pastor or for any of the members, it's not the place to be the Lone Ranger. This is a good place for us to be a team. You mentioned, Phil, that you know, um, their understanding or willingness to let the Bible be a part of the healing process. And, and I was wondering, I mean, I, I, I know you've, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but I'm pretty sure it's right there anyway. C could you give us uh, an example of maybe a um, a biblical story that would, 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 would fit the idea of, of God dealing with someone that went through a trauma. I think when you look at the story of David, mm. uh, I think you see all kinds of trauma in David's life. Um, you, you have, um, a, a trauma in his early life of, um, the King who's before him treating him like he's the enemy and chasing him all around, attacking him uh, out, to, out to take his life. And the amount of moral injury that has to be involved in that of, of feeling that I'm doing the right thing and yet this guy is uh, treating me like I'm the enemy, um, having to flee to a foreign nation and pretend that he is insane and uh, uh, act out in ways that, that that acted like a madman from his point of view so that uh, he'd be not killed in the foreign country where, where he's living among an enemy. Uh, you know, th those kinds of things, uh, just leading up to all the things he did with battle and so on. Uh, when God tells him that he won't build a temple because he's a man of blood, I think uh, those words from God speak very deeply of uh, maybe also the trauma that David knows. Uh, David doesn't fight those words. He he understands that and appoints his son to to build the temple. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that 
that uh, God is telling us maybe more in those words than most of us stop and think about, about the kind of trauma that David endured. That'd be just one quick example. Thanks. No, I, I, uh, I don't even play a psychiatrist on TV, so I'm, I'm further away. But I, I thought about Moses' life, you know, the, the trauma of his childhood and the trauma of his um, of fighting identity issues and then how it lashes out in, in murder that seemed to be almost um, uh, spontaneous, not, not, not pre-planned or premeditated. But anyway, just about like bringing the Bible into those conversations and, um, and the Psalms are probably great for that as well. And that speaks to David's life. Uh, Psalm 34 verse 18 to be one I think of right off. The Lord is close to the broken heart. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, to me, that fits very closely with this, this injury. I just want to make uh, kind of one comment that kind of takes us back for a second and then uh, take us to another question that we have. Um, something that, and this is probably more personal than, um, than anyone wanted to get right now, but like I remember um, when there was, um, the fire over here at my apartment. Um, what I found helpful, um, one of the one of the things I found helpful, uh, Phil, was actually talking to you, and then also um, just from the perspective of like what a pastor can do. It was a combination of like talking to you, talking to my pastor, and then also seeking seeking counseling. And I think being able to um, to recognize that it's going to be a journey that the person is is going on, and also that there that that there is that need for different supports for the different areas because we're more than just like we're more than just body or more than just spirit. Um, there's a need for like all of those things kind of in that process of dealing with that. Um, so yeah, that's what I wanted to say on that. And then to the next question we have in the chat, this question is really like probably three or four questions. So we'll take it one at a time. Um, does either panelist have a general opinion of how police departments are addressing PTSD is the first part of that question. I would say they're more aware of it than they've ever been in the past. Um, and it'll depend on the department here. There, there will be some departments that are going to be old school in, in their attitude of, you know, tough up and, and uh, you know, if, if, you, if you just toughen up, you'll be okay or whatever. But a lot of them are past that attitude today. A lot of them are, are uh, working much harder at uh, continuing to get self-help, continue to have someone to talk to, uh, take care of it today so that you'll be a value to us also into the future. So uh, even if you don't think about it from the point of view of what I, how I feel about the officer, and that's, this is one of the points that I've tried to make to, to a department before. If I don't give a rip about this officer, then I ought to care about all the money I spend on this officer. <laughs> and that, that sounds, uh, you know, just, 
bad, I guess, but but just try to make that point to the to the department that hey, you spent a lot of money on this officer. This is an investment way bigger than the car or whatever else you spent on. So um, take care of your investment, and your investment needs to be to be. Uh, you'd polish your car, you'd, you'd uh, repair the engine. Uh, you need to repair this heart and soul on a regular basis. Mm. Um, Jason, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of how police departments are handling it. I think certainly it's society um, is more aware of it. People kind of treat it in an offhand way sometimes. I'm triggered by this. I have PTSD about things that you know aren't really PTSD. So there's certainly more of a more of an awareness and a, uh, acknowledgement of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I do think that there it's still somewhat stigmatized, and there's still a belief. The, the thing that I've seen a lot as well, such and such happened. Oh, that person is going to need lifelong counseling. For, uh, they are just broken and damaged, <laughs> and the evidence doesn't show that at all. And so I think, um, you know, we kind of err on both sides of it of not caring whatsoever happens to this person. That's very damaging, but also assuming that the person is now damaged goods for the rest of their life because they've experienced something difficult, or even they've had the diagnosis of PTSD is kind of erring on the other side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, that idea of the stigma is something I'm going to want to come back to in a second, but uh, thank you both for your responses to that. Um, so the next part of this question is, uh, to me, it seems like it's a natural part of the job. And then from there, can PTSD play a role in police brutality? If so, what prevents, uh, what preventative measures can be put into place so someone else's trauma doesn't cause more trauma? Should I go first again? Yes, it, it definitely is a part of their of their uh, of their role, um, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't do our very best to heal them. Uh, you don't you don't ask a soldier to go to war and, and assume there won't be any war, but we also uh, are going to do everything we can to um, providing any healing that we can provide. <clears throat> so that's what I'd be looking for us to do. And I think the best way for us to keep from having the problem where an officer mistreats uh, uh, another human being later is to make sure that that officer doesn't ever uh, get to be such damaged goods themselves that, that uh, they can no longer uh, properly maybe measure what they're doing or, or how they act or, or uh, become hardened to the extent that, that they don't care or, or want to mistreat somebody like that. I, I think that's an, I, I, don't, I don't think you can just teach that in a course and, and have it solve it. I think it takes a relationship of caring and trust that should be built into um, the long-term relationship that you have in that, that structure of, of the command staff. If you can get it there, then you've done some really good things. Mm -hmm. That's a big, big request, but that's, that's where I'd like to see it fixed. Yeah, and I think, you know, theoretically, I don't know if anyone's ever proven this in a court of law, but if you're, if you're hypervigilant and, 
you know, you have intense fears of this thing happening and you even have, sometimes you're dissociating that you could perceive a situation that is not hostile as one that is. Um, and then with the hypervigilance, also your reactions could be more hostile than, than they necessarily need to be. Um, where I would like to see uh, us deal with this is really the stigma. I think if we, if we can lower the stigma and have kind of universal screenings and make it okay to talk about having the symptoms, then you're, you're likely to be able to help people. You're likely to be able to change their job duties until such time as they are ready to handle them. But the more stigma there is, the more incentive there is to just keep it under the rug. And I think that's probably the most dangerous thing that you can do is to have people who are experiencing these symptoms and don't feel like they can tell anybody. Well said. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. What are some of the ways that we can, uh, we, we can actually kind of get rid of the stigma around that so that we can make those positive steps forward? Yeah, I think, you know, one is to understand that it, that this is not um, a symptom of, or it's not, it's not, first of all, let's begin by just looking at, we all experience trauma, like, you know, a high percentage of, of, of the population is going to experience some trauma. So we need to normalize that, that all of us are going to experience something in our lives that was, that was traumatizing and that we're going to have normal reactions to that. And sometimes those, those symptoms are going to resolve in six months. And sometimes they're going to get stuck for one reason or another maybe because of the way I'm thinking about it, maybe because I can't get any downtime between it, but that that's normal. And so um, treating these symptoms as shocking or um, you know, wanting to, to, to sort of observe somebody else's uh, shocking symptoms, that these are normal things. They're, they're normal things that happen and it's the body and the brain trying to protect us from it happening again. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. It's just normalizing how much of the population is going to experience at least one traumatic event and how much of the population is gonna experience some of these symptoms. And, um, and then really look at you know, the fact of how many people have recovered from these even once they've been uh, diagnosed and that treatment is effective and those kind of things. I think all of those can reduce the stigma. If we think it's, it's exceptionally um, rare that, that the symptoms that happen are very unusual. And we think that once they happen, the person is broken and they're never gonna get better again. We're, we're gonna tend to stigmatize it more. Whereas if, if we realize can everybody's may have these symptoms at some point, many times they resolve uh, either on their own or with therapy, then I think we're, we stand a much better chance of having open discussions about it. It's, I think what we're doing like right what we're doing right here, I think, is part of that, having an open discussion that hopefully allows some people to, to understand it in a better way than they did before. You know, uh, Jason, you mentioned earlier about the two sides of either it's nothing or it's everything. Is one of those things maybe in our society that we don't just throw out the term whenever we have a bad moment in life, you know, that, that, that we respect that it is a, a, a something that is real and serious and we can't just say it because of every bad moment we've had right yeah there's kind of a um 
the belittling of it maybe it's not i don't think it's meant to be belittling it's just sort of a humorous thing oh i've got ptsd about wearing a bad outfit and somebody said something about it or whatever um yeah i think i think we won't you know it's that it's a lot of times it is that golden it's the golden mean right it's not it's not the end of the world it's not nothing either right and if we and if we just kind of accurately look at what it is uh that's really the most helpful in a lot of, in a lot of situations where we want to get rid of stigma is just kind of accurately looking at what it is can reduce some of that stigma it kind of sounds like something else that might be helpful in this process is um, kind of an understanding of uh, of the gospel because i i hear like when we're talking about stigma and understanding that it can happen to everyone kind of realizing that we are living in a in a fallen world and that we're all in need of that because that helps us to to look at people also from a position instead of like instead of judging where it's where we can be kind of more um i don't know if understanding is the word i'm looking for but um yeah, I'm kind of struggling for words right now. So, well, I, I, I think I, go, go ahead, Phil. I was going to say understanding is a really good start. Uh, you understand uh, a little bit about where the, where they're at. You you have true empathy for them in that situation, and therefore, because of that true empathy that you have, you want to to react in the way that is best for them. Um, the whole everything that's happened with with Black Lives Matter this year, I think, uh, either was a misuse, or it was empathy. If it was empathy, it was good, and if it wasn't empathy, if it was uh, destructive anger or destructive, uh, see if you, why you know you don't have any right to ask or whatever. If it's those kinds of attitudes, then it's always destructive. When it's empathy, I care about your situation. I care about the pain you've got. I care about what's going wrong and I want to to understand it and 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 even be part of the healing process. If that's what we're doing, then it will always be good. Yeah. You know, and, and just to piggyback on that for a little bit, and sometimes they might sound very similar. They could. Because, yeah. Because how it's how the the, the it said it might sound very similar, but it, the, the motivation matters. I thought yes. of two things scripturally that are coming to mind. One. The, the greatest trauma, as, as Ruth kind of uh, alluded to a little bit, was falling to sin. And and God gave them time to debrief. <laughs> he, he debriefed them right there in the garden. Before they had the consequence of leaving the garden, he debriefed them and gave them a chance to talk through what had just happened. And, and that, that sounds a lot like what you're saying we need to do with a lot of incidents in our lives. And then the other point that came out on the other end is after Christ died, the, the second most brutal act in history is the dying on the cross for our, our sins. And, and the ladies on that Sunday were going to the tomb, working out their problems. There was a traumatic thing, and they wanted to do something to to process it, to make it right. And um, so just how God knows us so well has, has used the tools that that you two have shared with us today in different ways in our lives are saying, yeah, you do need time to process. That's why I ask you, you know, where are you? Who told you you sinned? And 
Why are you hiding? And, and, and those things are debriefing. And, and the ladies go into the, to the tomb. I'm sure they talked about the spices and the things that went on. And, 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 and even, I mean, it's just so much in scripture that speaks to unpacking trauma by talking. The, the road to Emmaus, the disciples, they, they got to talk it out. The entire thing, they talked it out. And, and there was comfort there when they heard the gospel again. So um, I definitely am appreciative of hearing the words of God then duplicated by you in, in, in life. So thanks for those words. Could I share one one scripture that I think also is applicable here? It says, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, in every way as we have, yet he did not sin. And we know that while he was on the cross, he became sin. And so all of the the moral injustices that have, have, have happened, all the experiences that we've had, he became those things. And so the ultimate, the most empathetic person on the planet is, is Jesus. And he, and he experienced his own trauma uh, on the cross. And talk about something that should not have happened. The Holy Lamb of God should not have been nailed to that cross. And so he knows what it's like when something is deeply wrong and I experienced it anyway. And so we have a resource in Christianity that um, is unique to us in that our, our Christ knows what these feelings are like, and we can tell him, and it is not self-indulgent to say, my stomach feels like this, my throat feels like this, these are the thoughts that are happening. I, you know, it, it's not self-indulgent to go to him and talk to him about it. He cares. Amen. It's a great way to close our thoughts. Um, before before we do close out, though, um, do we have anything else coming in from the chat right now? Um, if there are any other questions or anything that you want us to speak to before we close out, we'd be more than happy to speak to those. While we wait, uh, Jason, can you give me a little bit of background on resilient recovery? I, I've heard about it a few times, but I'm not really familiar with what it what it does. Sure. So we're a we're a Christ-centered group for folks that are struggling with uh, most centrally it's substance abuse issues, but also people that are struggling with uh, anxiety and depression as well. So we our core group is going to be folks that are that are dealing with substance abuse issues. But anyone who can take the metaphor of recovery and apply it to their situation is welcome. And so we have people who are recovering from people pleasing. Um, we've, we've, our pastor has talking, spoken about this on uh, YouTube several times. So I'm not saying things out of school, but he, he had some panic attacks and he comes to resilient as well. And so in the format, what we do is we typically look at a verse as law and what it's telling us about ourselves and the ways in which we've sinned and fallen short. And we relate that to how did that contribute to getting into the situation we did with drugs and alcohol. But we don't leave anyone there because we're good Lutherans and we <laughs> want to bring in the gospel. And so we then proclaim the gospel and we share a verse as well that helps people understand exactly why they can have confidence that the things they just confessed 
are completely forgiven. And then we take and then we take a few moments to think about if that's true, then how do I live my life? And what is what does that have? What does that you know? What does that do in terms of my substance abuse and those kind of things? And so we meet online. People can go to www.restinjesus.com and sign up and um, and attend a meeting. And we're just we're there to help. We also have it's very confidential. Sometimes people. Uh, we'll call in and all we'll see is their phone number. And we really, we don't know their first name. We don't know anything else that's going on, but they're in a position where uh, confidentiality is very important to them. And then we've got folks like me that uh, tell everyone that uh, their, their issues and their troubles. And so uh, it kind of spans the, ga- the gamut, but we're, but we're a safe place for anyone that wants to talk about the issues of substance abuse. Wonderful. Is there, is there a way to donate on that website as well? To the ministry? Yes, there's there's a page that will talk about it, but the page will take them to our church's website, and okay. it's one of the options that they can donate on the on uh, the church's website. Resilient Ministry would be what they would pick. Wonderful, thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other questions, Ruth? Coming up. Um. No, I guess. Um... We don't have anything else coming in. So okay. can I just share one more one more fact since we have a couple minutes? Yeah. Um, there's also a process called post-traumatic growth, which I think people should be aware of. And that is that many times after people have experienced a traumatic experience, it causes, it's sort of like the foundation of their current way of thinking of the world crumbles. And out of that rum and out of that rubble, they create a new life. And so many people who've lost a loved one or experienced a traumatic event can um, actually experience some growth following this. We saw this post 9-11 that people may have changed a job or they may have gone back to a hobby that they had before. They might've gotten closer to their family members and decided relationships are super important to me. Also, uh, people became more religious in the wake of that and and felt uh, more strength and comfort from their religious faith. And so keep a, keep an eye out for that as well. I don't want to minimize in any way PTSD when it happens, but God is so gracious to us that sometimes after a traumatic event, he actually allows us to grow. And also, um, I would like to make a correction to that website. Mm-hmm. Um, probably be easier to find it at the .org. Oh yeah. All right, and then before we close out here, Phil, give give us how we can contact you and uh, and Institutional Ministries and that whole thing. Uh, Institutional Ministries is a ministry that sends chaplains into uh, many many different places, uh, into prisons, into jails, into hospitals, into mental health centers, uh, and I especially work with the police and and fire and and other uh, first responder and and. Uh, uh, special workers that are in the, the, the frontline worker uh, area. Uh, the easiest way to make contact would be our, our website is im.life. That's capital letter I, capital letter M, as in institutional ministries, im.life. Uh, life is our ending. And uh, so office.im.life or my name at office.im.life, um, at, at im.life, I'm sorry. So philip.henseline, but, but the simplest is office at 
I am that life and you'll have us. And you'll find our pictures there, you'll find contact information, uh, you'll find uh, ways to call us and so on as well. Well, thanks, Phil. Seeing as Ruth went personal a moment ago, let me go personal just to wrap up my time here. It's about debriefing. Uh, about five years ago, I was up to preach on a Saturday night. My cousin called me and said, our neighbor who was a police officer had committed murder-suicide an hour before I'm set to preach. I stood before the congregation and I shared with them what was going through my heart and my mind before I started the service because I couldn't have gone on, I think, just holding that in. That, that balloon was going to pop. And so I had to release that with them. And then we prayed. They prayed for me, prayed with me. Uh, trauma is, is, is real. Um, having someone to talk to, people that love you, that, that know the Lord, that will show you grace is, is tremendous. And uh, and the anniversary of that day, it hits me every time. So I, I, I get it. And I think we all have those moments. Let's not minimize. Uh, let's not make them comical. But let's, let's as, as both gentlemen have said, I thank you for being here with us today. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a real thing. And so let's, let's pray that God bless all of us as we deal with whatever trauma is in our life. Ruth, you want to close us out with something? What do you got? Um, I would also say that <clears throat> uh, just a reminder to stay tuned to the website and to the Facebook page for information about the conference and also the, uh, the giving links for, um, well, the, the websites for both uh, resilient and institutional ministry should be in the comments as well as the uh, giving link for uh, Voice of the Middle Ground will be there as well. Um, it doesn't look like we have any other comments coming in, so let's, we can go ahead and pray out. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you know all that we go through uh, because you know all things. But even more than that, as it was reminded of to us today by Jason, that you have lived and have been tempted in every way like we have been through your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and yet you still show us grace and mercy, that you endured all of that so that we might experience your grace and mercy and, and you're saving us from eternal damnation, eternal trauma. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And help us now as those who know that we will never have to experience eternal trauma, help each other in the moments of today and the, the traumas of this our lives, recognizing, identifying, supporting, and then also looking for those growth moments so that uh, we're not just looking for negative, but also for positive. So thank you for these uh, gentlemen who joined Ruth and, and me on this, this juice bar. For all those who were watching, uh, it was a blessing to you. Share this with friends and families that they might be blessed as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone. And audience, it was good to talk to you all. <laughs>